we have an opportunity as we are continuing through this study on the theology of trouble to think about what you do with trouble. It is my contention and takes no great intellect on my part to say that if we created an open mic and people were suddenly unguarded about themselves and they had 24 hours to spare and we just let people start coming up here and they each had 30 minutes and they could just tell you in response to this question, tell us your sorrows. Tell us what you're worried about this week. Tell us what awful thing happened last week or last month or two years ago that still stains every day. You would be alarmed, even though the people around you are so pretty and showered. You would be alarmed at the sorrows that they carry and the troubles that they are actively wading through and from which they speak and act and hear what's happening in the world. And so I wanted to talk today as we eavesdrop on the Apostle Paul in a correspondence with the Corinthians. We have two of them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There's likely a couple more that got lost, this correspondence that the Apostle Paul had with the church in Corinth. But I think we're going to see something that's mighty helpful and can be depicted by thinking about two concurrent scenes that I saw on Friday night. I got the opportunity with our family to go to the U.S. men's national soccer game against Jamaica. And those poor Jamaicans, I don't know, I assume they play in cold weather. It was, I think it was, I don't know, 14 minus 22 degrees, something like that. It was the last time, I, I, I can't, I haven't still been able to feel my fingers yet. But there was this sort of, I guess, carved out moment for a sermon illustration where on one end of the field, there was a wiseacre, we'll call him spry and lively and exuberant and he might you know he may go to church here i don't know i don't know who it was if it's your brother or your roommate i enjoyed the entertainment dude hopped to the fence was running on the field and was immediately chased it's important that you understand the word chased not caught chased by two security guards whom he was rapidly making look very silly. And I can only imagine in front of this 17,000 people or whatever that was there, this man who was running on the field and jumping over the fence, and they were jumping over the fence, and then he was juking them, and then he jumped back over the fence, and they were surely covered in a kind of shame. This guy is showing us up. So they did the natural thing. You see the guy jump over the fence, and he's running, and suddenly he just goes limp because he got tased. See, there's a way to end your shame. It's by injecting large voltage of electricity and a wiseacre. The dude was not running anymore. It was shocking and hilarious, and I doubt he'll do that anymore. So there he was on that end of the floor, on that end of the court, uh, court yes, on that end of the field, the pitch, face down, disabled, threat averted, handcuffs being put on him, handcuffs, why well, he can't even move. <laughs> on the other end of the field, there was a downed Jamaican player 
I've learned in the little bit I'm learning about soccer, you never can tell when someone's hurt if they're going for an Oscar or if they're actually injured. But he seemed pretty well injured. He was writhing on the floor, and a group of guys, Marshall being one of them, gender inclusive guys, maybe men and women, carrying out a stretcher came out to get this injured man. So you had an athlete on one end of the court, the pitch lying down, writhing in pain. You had another lying down on the other end. One pain inflicted on him in the course of the game, one who brought his own pain on himself. And yet, nevertheless, both of them needed a lot of other hands to get them off the field. The affectionately monikered jackweed on the one end who had been tased was escorted off the field with the help of these security guards. The Jamaican player who had been injured was carried off on a stretcher by loving hands, making sure he did not fall. Whether the trouble you bring on yourself or the trouble that has been brought to you, we are, Paul will tell us, refreshment brokers. We're people who have been designed and engrafted into Christ's community to receive comfort and refreshment from others and then to generously share it, to be those hands who are carrying people off the field, whether those people were just the object of some suffering they had nothing to do with or whether they brought it on their own selves. And of course, some of us in this vocation of refreshment are at times going to have to receive it. We're going to have to let ourselves sit there, lie there, and be carried off a field. So let's look at this, that we are brokers of refreshment. This is part of our calling as God's people. We receive refreshment from God, and then we send it out to others. We receive from others refreshment from God, and we accept it, and we delight in it, and then we share it with others. This is part of as Marshall was saying, the economy of God. Part of what the Apostle Paul says at the beginning of this letter when he says, starting out in doxology, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. This is how he thinks of God. Is that how you think of him? The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others in any trouble with the comfort that we have received. He has a strong sense of this interdependence, this mutuality that God gives to one that it might be shared with the other, that God lets another receive that they might share it with the other. We are brokers of refreshment. Listen to what Paul says. Jumping into the middle, he says, For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort that you had given him. We are brokers of God's refreshment. And the first thing you need to know about that 
is that God comforts the downcast. That's how Paul thinks of him in this. This whole book, if you want to have a rewarded study of Scripture about trouble and how you can endure it and what you should expect from it, 2 Corinthians is an amazing text for that. But Paul wants to say, look, here's some good news that you need to make space in your life for, and you may have stopped hoping about, is that if you find yourself harassed, restless, conflicts on the outside, fears within, which is to say, if you find yourself sitting here, If you find yourself in the family that you're in, you have some of these maladies, conflicts, fears, harassment. Or if you have a job, or if you have bills to pay, or if you have a chronic illness, or if you have an awful diagnosis, you're harassed. You have conflicts outside. You have fears within. And Paul wants you to know that God comforts the downcast, and he wanted me to tell you. Because it's very easy for you to stop expecting, especially when you are cast down. That's why the psalmist has to say, why are you so cast down, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Martin Lloyd-Jones would remind us that sometimes we have to not listen to ourselves, but talk to ourselves. We have to remember that God, as Paul spins him out, as he introduces us to him, says he's the God of all comfort and the Father of compassions who comforts us in our troubles. He comforts the downcast. It's really important. And I wonder when you're sad or when you're harassed, if you ever spend time saying, hey, God, you comfort the downcast. I am cast down. This is algebra. I'm the perfect candidate for your action now. Would you console me? That's a legal request. Would you comfort me in this harassment? That is a perfectly invited petition. Will you make something happen that will bring buoyancy to my spirit, that will lift my head, that will comfort me? Because he comforts the downcast. Now the question is, how does he do this? And Paul, with his economy of God's grace, it's always circulating, says he comforts the downcast. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. One of the ways that he comforts us is merely by the presence of other people. He has a Description of Timothy, his son in the faith in Philippians. It's a lovely description. Maybe you'll get described one day like this. He says, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone is concerned about their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. He heralds his son in the faith, Timothy, because he has this exemplary character that is associated with this. He can't be okay if the church he's serving and the community he's a part of is not okay. He has a genuine interest in the well-being of the people outside of him. 
their headaches and their broken hearts, their joblessness and their relational chaos undoes him. Now, in psychological terms, we would say that he was codependent. And Paul would say he's well-adjusted. Because he's been weaned off himself and realizes that his life is about the welfare of others, which Paul describes as the interests of Jesus Christ. If you're going to be a comfort broker, if you're going to expect comfort from God, and if you're going to offer it on behalf of God, you have to get this sense in you that what Jesus is most interested in, the interests of Jesus Christ, are like sitting right next to you. He's very interested. He has a great deal at stake in the person sitting in front of you and behind you, the person who's wriggling in your lap. The people who are whispering and carrying on and making too much noise behind you, and you're going, please, please, don't they know we're in church. He's very interested in them. And wonderfully, as you may have uncovered, as I do, I have a lot easier time, and I've heard lots of people say it, when I pray for you people, I have a lot easier time appealing to God's immense affection for other people. I can believe it so much more easily than I can for myself. I suspect that somehow, sometimes I'm left out of it, but I know it's true for everybody else. But Jesus is interested in you. He cares what happens to you, not just you. He's propped himself up against the ruin of the world. And so the apostle says he sent Titus. That's how he comforted us. He brought this man into our lives who was going to be there with us. I have Timothy, who has a genuine interest in your welfare. He has the interests of Jesus Christ. He sends people. This is how he brokers his care. You've heard the old joke, surely. And don't call me surely. You've heard the old joke, though, about the man who was in a town where severe flooding had come. It's a hackneyed joke, but it demonstrates this point well, where he's stuck on a roof, and he's a very religious man. He's a very trusting man. He says, God, please send me help. Please rescue me from my distress. And the floodwaters rise, and these good old boys come by in a John boat, and they say, come on, man, the water's rising. Get in the boat. Get saved from here. He says, no, the Lord will save me. You go on. As the water continues to rise closer to the roof where he's seated, the police come by. Sir, come down. You can be rescued. It's not going to be long before the waters are going to cover your roof. You need to get in the boat with us. God will save me, he says. And then eventually a helicopter comes. Helicopter drops down their ladder on top of the roof that's now level with the water. Says, sir, you're going to die. Grab hold of the ladder and climb up and be rescued. Well, after the man drowns, Having been sure that God was going to save him, he reportedly, this, this is on TMZ, so I don't know if it's true. He reportedly stood in the throne room of God where people reportedly have such conversations after death and said, God, why didn't you save me? Why is my time on earth done? Why didn't you save me? And God said, I sent you those good old boys in a John boat and a police and a helicopter. What on earth else do you want me to do? And he's like, oh. You mustn't get too spiritual for God. You must realize that God is, as C.S. Lewis said, a master delegator. He likes to hand out 
responsibilities to people that they will then bring into other people's lives. So if he wants to show comfort to another, generally that's going to come through someone who's learned something about comfort through their own travail. If you're going to find someone to help you in your grief, it's very often going to be those who have themselves been crushed and swallowed up by their own grief and somehow figured a way out of the hole and they can be with you. If you start to believe this, it'll start to make you alert and awake because as surely as you need to be on the lookout for how has God brought comfort or provision or love or kindness into my life, a lot of times you're just missing it because you're thinking it should come in a specific way. You just haven't noticed all the ways that it has come. But you also got a chance to remember or get a chance to remember that maybe God is, as I go out into the world each day, asking me to steward some of the sorrows I've had and the comforts that have come along with them. And the longer you've been alive on this earth, the more troubles you've had and the more troubles you've seen through and the more compassion, therefore, you've got to offer C.S. Lewis tells this story in an essay called The Efficacy of Prayer, which is a fancy way of saying, does prayer work? How does prayer work? And he says, one morning I woke up and I was planning that day to get a haircut. But it soon became apparent to me as I opened up the morning post, the mail, that I was going to have business in London that day and things were getting out of control and there's no way I was going to be able to get a haircut. But this nagging voice in my head kept saying, go and get the haircut all the same. Go on, go get it. And eventually he said, I just succumbed to this gadfly of remembrance. Go get your haircut. Go get your haircut. And I said, okay, dag nabbit. I think that's what he used to say a lot, dag nabbit. And when he went to the barber shop, the barber, as he walked in, said, oh, good. I've been praying that you would come. And Lewis said, this was a man my brother and I had often helped, and if we had come any later, it would not have been of any help to him. And I stand amazed to this day, and I was amazed then that it happened that way, that I somehow came in response to his prayers. It's worth asking as you go about in your day as a broker of God's refreshment, what people might God bring into your mind? What people might pop into your heart? When you're feeling lonely yourself, when you're feeling discouraged yourself, when you're wondering, does anybody love me? Do I matter to anyone? Does the, do the people in this church care about me? Am I on the inside or the outside? Do my friends, when I'm looking at all the fun they're having that I'm not a part of, on the true depiction of reality called social media, It's not a true depiction of reality, everyone. Do you realize that? It's an altered state, like a hallucination. But am I I valued? Does someone care about me? Let me me tell you, you can't ever answer those questions successfully by yourself. Generally, if you are asking that question of your spouse or of your friends, of your employer, am I valued enough, am I paid enough, am I respected enough, loved enough, esteemed enough, you will get the answer of no. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. 
you're probably, if you go around and everybody is getting pop quizzes from you, you know, people hate pop quizzes if you've been a student. And if you're going around pop quizzing everybody as to whether they love you or not, they're not going to enough because it's not going to be the way you want. But knowing how badly you want to be loved and cherished and not lonely, knowing how badly you long and crave for God's comfort and his encouragement in your life to belong when you are afflicted by these questions, am I loved? It's also a great opportunity for you to go to the Lord and say, who might I offer an answer to their question about? See, we have these questions, am I loved? But if I'm having the question, then I bet somebody near me is having it as well. If I'm wondering if I matter to anyone or if my work matters to anyone or if anybody cares a flip about me, then I bet there are other people around me who wonder the same. Maybe I should seek to show them. Maybe they're praying for their own comfort and you're the answer. I got a call this week from one of our elders who said, hey, I just wanted to let you know I'll tell you what he was going to let me know. But I was in the middle of something. I was about to do something. I was glad I answered the phone. It came out of nowhere. I just wanted to let you know. And he just went on this sort of litany of my awesomeness, which I never believe. And it was so amazing. And he said, I just had this thought, and I thought I would let you know this is what you do. And this is what makes you such an amazing pastor. And I know that you're not going to believe that I'm depicting things rightly because of what you know on your inside, but you're wrong. And he just did that. He just had the thought and he did it. And God comforted the downcast by the sending of that phone call. But of course, if you're going to comfort the downcast, if you're going to be a broker of refreshment, if you're going to receive refreshment, or if you're going to offer refreshment, you know what you've got to be willing to do? Be silly or feel silly. You don't have to do it sillily, but most of the kinds of things that bring comfort to people like injecting yourself into their lives by offering your presence or bringing them a meal or sitting with them or giving them a call when you're worried about them, almost all of these things, you're going to think of yourself as being regarded as silly if you do it. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. If you're committed to protecting yourself from looking silly, you have already decided you will not comfort anyone. You've heard me say about this man, Tim Strawbridge. I, I love this story. I've told it years ago. The only man I know who makes me feel like a little girl in terms of size. That's how giant he is. And so he like looks down on me and it's like four times wider than I am. If that's even possible for a human to be, you might say. And he has two little things he says. One is he said, you know what? When I was a kid, in the mornings, my dad would wake us up. And you know what he would say? And if you've tried to wake up teenagers, you know that it's a, it requires a lot of fasting and prayer. <laughs> you need like a cattle prod. No, our guys get up. Our guys get up. But it's hard. I've done it at camp before, trying to get up boys for summer school, which they love. Boys love to go to school in the summer. It's amazing. So you're trying to wake up boys at 7 o'clock in the morning or whatever time it is. And it's oh, and I never I never got frustrated with them. You just you need a cattle prod with electricity in it to to jolt them. 
He said, my dad would say, guys, get up. Today's going to be an amazing day. It's going to be an awesome day. Why, Dad? He said, because at some point today, at some point today, it's going to dawn on you just how much I love you. Okay, Dad. But you know what? Any boy who hears that, any girl who hears that, on the one hand, they're going to roll their eyes and say, okay, Dad. And on the other hand, they're going to say, I hope he never stops doing things like that. And Timo will come up to me sometimes and put his hulking hand around my hand and make me feel like a little, little waifish fellow. And he'll say, how come I love you so much more than you do? And I'll, I'll get away from me, large man. Why are you peering unwelcome into my soul? Stop it and please keep doing it. Come on, stop. That's what it's like. Now, what must it feel like for him to do that? Well, for him, probably nothing, because he's gregarious and he has no fear and he has no awareness of himself, which is a nice and free way to live. For most normal people, doing things like that is pretty scary. You feel a little vulnerable yourself saying it. But you just got to get over that, because that's where connection happens. That's where the, where, where the comfort of God gets to Move back and forth through this conduit of your connection together. This is what a community does for each other. The God who comforts the downcast, he comforts us with the presence of others. He brokers his care through them. And then lastly, this, he gives affirmation. I just want you to note that the Apostle Paul, before millennials existed, before fragile little worthless millennials existed, I'm being, you see I'm using air quotes, fragile little worthless millennials millennials get a bad rap. They're too coddled and too many awards when they're young. Whatever stupid things people say. But you know what's interesting? Before they even came about in the tough and rugged first century where people didn't even have refrigerators or cable TV, the apostle could say this to this church. Hey, open your hearts to us. We've opened ours to you. We would live or die with you. Our fate. Our future is so tied up with your well-being, we can't even stand it. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. This is like Stuart Smalley, except he's doing it for them. You hear this affirmation? I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. There's all kinds of troubles. But you know what's fixing me right up? Not a cute set of curtains or an artistic new bathroom. It's you. I'm so proud of the way you're loving each other. And then he goes on to say, in addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. His spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. I was telling Titus, when you get to this church in Corinth, they're going to knock your socks off the way they welcome you, the way they have you into their lives, the way they open their hearts up to you, the way they encourage you, the way they refresh you and make you think this faith of ours is real and vital and that something's going on. I've been bragging about you. I knew you'd do it. I knew you'd do it like that. Do you hear that affirmation? Most of you are going to walk out of here today 
and have some sense in your head, not most of you, but 40, I think it's 46.5% last I studied, are going to walk out thinking that God is eager for you to mess up and is going to be laughing delightedly or scornfully sour at you when you screw up. I knew you'd screw up. I knew you'd get mad at your kids again. You just need to try harder. Listen to the apostle who's always saying, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm speaking on behalf of Christ. The Christ who comforts the downcast by sending others into our lives and also the Christ who affirms us. Watch me by modeling. I'm delighted in you guys. I take great comfort in you guys. I'm so excited about how you're doing. And this, after he's just written them a letter that makes them sad, that led them to repentance. It's not that they were perfect. It's that they were adored. And he let them know. And, of course, it makes you feel silly sometimes to let people know that. If we're going to be brokers of God's refreshment, you got to be willing to be silly sometimes. you got to be willing to see in ways that you're not always seeing. you got to be on the lookout for who is God putting in my path or on my heart that I might broker refreshment and encouragement to them. Look for the lonely. Look for the angry. Look for the sour-faced. They're hurting bad. Look for the most critical, the most violent. They're in a lot of pain. God comforts the downcast. He does it through people. And he does it through affirmation. Your Savior in a garden wanted people near him when he was about to be made ultimately downcast, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he said, will you please stand watch with me? And as he drops of blood and his heart was decimated before God because he knew with trembling what he was about to drink, this cup of horrid and horrendous suffering, drinking an elixir of hell. Is there any way I cannot do this? And his friends fell asleep on him. And he was left all alone, just as he would be on a cross, naked and mocked and exposed and assuring us that we won't ever be devoid of God's comfort because he was. We're going to eat proof of that today. And we're going to do it not individually, but all together because we're brokers of his refreshment who comforts the downcast by his presence, which will be in this meal, by his affirmation, which is spoken of by what this meal says, that he is for you and never against you. So let us do the same. Let's pray. If you'll look.